The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 21. And today's study takes us to the end of this 21st chapter in what was perhaps the busiest day in the last week of Jesus' life. Now, this this uh, this day takes us all the way through chapter 25 in the Gospel of Matthew. So it was a very, very busy day. There, there was much instruction that Jesus gave. Uh, there were very strong rebukes as Jesus pointed to the religious leaders and he called them hypocrites and blind guides. He said that they were like whitewashed tombs that were filled with dead men's bones. Now, you think I'm hard on people sometimes, false prophets and people that are preaching a wrong gospel. Jesus had no favoritism towards people that did not tell the truth. So he said that they were like whitewashed tombs filled with dead men's bones. They were just people that were really in the depths of depravity. In the 23rd chapter, when Jesus spoke most of those scathing remarks, he made a a particular point in saying that these people were just like their fathers that were before them, that they were acting exactly as Israel had always acted in the past towards the people that God sent to them to draw them back, to bring them back to the righteousness of God. They always had this rebellious attitude in their attitudes and their uh, reactions towards God. Listen to this statement that Jesus makes in chapter 23. He said, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because ye build the tombs of the prophets and garnish the sepulchres of the righteous, and say, If we had been in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partakers with them in the blood of the prophets. Let me just pause there just a moment. Uh, These are people that made a big to-do about the prophets that came in the Old Testament, and they they garnished their tombs, Jesus said. They made them so that they were presentable to people, and they honored the prophets. So they said, but Jesus said, you are partakers with them in the blood of the prophets. He says, wherefore, ye be witnesses unto yourselves that ye are the children of them which killed the prophets. Fill ye up then the measure of your fathers. And so what Jesus was telling them that their history was just like the history of the past. It is repetition, repetition, repetition. The generation that Jesus addresses in this chapter is just like those thousands of years of Israelites that came before them. Now today what we're going to do is to examine a story that Jesus told that illustrates the consistent, continual rejection of Israel, the prophets that God had sent them to call them back to him. And then, of course, that culminates in the in the worst of all, not just the casting out of the prophets, but also the casting out of Jesus himself as they crucified the Son of God. Now, if you'll look in Matthew 21... Verse number 33, and we're going to stand again as we read God's word. Uh, Stand with me as we look at these uh, last few verses of this 21st chapter as Jesus tells them a story. He says, hear another parable. There was a certain householder which planted a vineyard and hedged it round about and digged a wine press in it and built a tower and let it out to husbandmen and went into a far country. And when the time of the fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the husbandmen that they might receive the fruits of it. And the husbandmen took his servants and beat one and killed another and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants more than the first, and they did unto them likewise. But last of all, he sent unto them his son, saying, they will reverence my son. But when the husbandmen saw the son, They said among themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and let us seize on his inheritance. And they caught him and cast him out of the vineyard and slew him. When the Lord, therefore, of the vineyard cometh, what will he do unto those husbandmen? They say unto him, he will miserably destroy those wicked men and will let out his vineyard unto other husbandmen, which shall render him the fruits in their seasons. Jesus saith unto them, 
Did you never read in the scriptures the stone which the builders rejected? The same has become the head of the corner. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, say I unto you, the kingdom of God shall be taken from you and given to a nation, bringing forth the fruits thereof. And whosoever shall fall on this stone shall be broken, but on whomsoever it shall fall, it shall grind him to powder. And when the chief priests and Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he spake of them. But when they sought to lay hands on him, they feared the multitude because they took him as a prophet. Father, thank you for your word today. Help us as we look into this story to understand better and to apply it in the way that you'd have us to. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I don't know how many of you enjoy reading and studying history. Uh, I, I have always loved history. I, I think back to the time that I was in school, and there were a lot of my classmates that really didn't care anything at all about history. I never cared to study it, but I, I have always liked it. In fact, there was a time in my very early academic career that my teacher sent home a report card to my parents and when she actually made this comment, she said, he knows more about world history than I do. Now, I've forgotten most of that information, so don't quiz me on anything after the services today. But I've always liked history. All kinds of history are interesting to me. But there's one history that supersedes all history. It's the key to understanding all of history. And that's the history that tells us who we are and why we are here. The most important history that you will ever read is the history that you find in the Bible. Now, I once had a very good friend who had a Ph.D. in history, and I asked him how much of what we read in our history books actually happened in the way that the books tell us that it happened. Now, he must have been a very great skeptic because he said that about 80% of what we read in history didn't happen the way that we're told that it happened. And I don't know how he had that information, but here was a man who was just a, just a great skeptic, a man who had devoted himself to history, and yet he had no confidence at all in the history that we read. But there is one history that I have absolute confidence in, that I know that it's absolutely true, that I can count on it, that I know that this is what happened exactly as it happened, and that's what I read in the Bible. It's what I read about what happened in these stories is, we talk about Jesus Christ and the miracles that were done in Scripture and how Israel and all the things that God did with them, uh, going back to, to, to Moses and, and, and what he did and those plagues and all of those things, just everything in the Bible, I believe is absolutely true and is the Word of God. We can have confidence that it is God's Word. So I'm sure of it, and I'm very sure of the history of Israel. Now, this is the one nation that the Bible deals with when it talks about history. And yet it's curious about this, that as you study world history, there is no one who puts very much significance on what happened in Israel. Your history books are not going to tell you about what significance that Israel has with the rest of the world. Now, Israel is referred to mainly as just a passing through place of the great empires of the world, a place that was a battleground between these great empires, such as Assyria and Babylon and Persia and, and Rome. And the history that we read really doesn't tell us very much about Israel at all. But when you come to the Bible, it mentions those world powers, but it only mentions them in relation to how they dealt with Israel, how Israel had an interrelationship with them. And so that's the only time that those empires are mentioned in the Bible. And that tells us that Israel is actually God's hub that all the rest of the world revolves around. Israel is God's place. Its history is the most important history. Now, verse number 42 in this parable contains a dual meaning. Jesus says there in that verse, Did you never read in the scriptures the stone which the builders rejected? The same has become the head of the corner. Now that, first of all, is talking about Jesus. He is the stone that was rejected. But there's also another meaning to this. Israel was also rejected by the rest of the world. 
Nobody pays any attention to Israel. They think that Israel's totally insignificant. And then to Israel's own peril, when the Messiah came, they considered him to be insignificant. They didn't honor him. They rejected him and said he's unworthy of our attention. Well, since the Bible is mainly concerned with Israel's history, we find that its history is repeated many times throughout scriptures. Uh, There are certain events that are told over and over again. And those events illustrate how that God is gracious, how that he is providential, how God is patient, and how God blesses. And yet through all of these things that the Word of God shows us through those, uh, through those events, there's still this constant rebellion that remains a part of the story. That Israel absorbed all of the blessings of God, but they continued to turn their back on him and to go their own way. Now, I'm not one who believes that we're able to find the United States of America in the Bible. I'm not one who thinks that there is a history of America actually recorded in the Bible. That I don't believe that the United States is God's chosen nation. I do believe that there are chosen people of God in this nation. But this nation hasn't been chosen in the same way that Israel was. And yet, knowing that information, we can still see a great parallel in Scripture between what happened to Israel and what is happening to America today. You you can consider what God said to his people, for instance, in two places, in Proverbs and in Psalms. In Proverbs 14.34, God said, Righteousness exalteth a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. In Psalm chapter 9, he said, the wicked shall be turned into hell and all nations that forget God. I think that's fair warning to us that if we continue on the same path of rejection that Israel traveled, that we are going to reap the same results that they reaped. Now, we're going to take a few minutes today to examine uh, this story Uh, Jesus told the religious leaders what would be the outcome of their rejection of him. And this story is one that is pointed directly at them. But there is also a message here for us. Now, if you have been with us in our study of Matthew, especially the past few weeks, let me just tell you that this story fits the entire narrative of what we've learned in the 21st chapter. That we're still talking about the rejection of the authority of Jesus Christ. That's still the underlying issue that we have here. Well, let's first observe today, first of all today, the privileges of Israel. How privileged that they were of God. In verse number 33, Jesus says, Here another parable. There was a certain householder which planted a vineyard and hedged it round about and digged a wine press in it and built a tower and led it out to husbandmen and went into a far country. He says there was a certain householder which planted a vineyard. Now, I hope as we read this entire narrative a moment ago that you're already putting the pieces of this puzzle together. Here Jesus speaks of a very common occurrence in Israel. There was a householder. That means there was a landowner, and this landowner planted a vineyard. Now, in the parable, there's no doubt that the landowner here represents God. And the vineyard is a well-known reference that comes out of the Old Testament that speaks of the kingdom of God. The vineyard is the kingdom of God, or we might say the sphere of where God works in this world. Now, if you would, I'd like you to turn to the Old Testament, to the book of Isaiah, chapter 5. And this is most likely a parallel passage for the story that we're reading here in Matthew. And I really don't have any doubt that this is the place that Jesus builds on as he tells this story to these religious leaders. And they would have known this place because they were very familiar with the scriptures. So they know this passage in Isaiah. So these are the words of God that are given through Isaiah the prophet. Isaiah chapter 5, beginning at verse number 1. Now will I sing to my well-beloved a song of my beloved, touching his vineyard. My well-beloved hath a vineyard in a very fruitful hill, and he fenced it and gathered out the stones thereof and planted it with the choicest vine and built a tower in the midst of it and also made a wine press therein. And he looked that it should bring forth grapes, and it brought forth wild grapes. 
And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge, I pray you, betwixt me and my vineyard. What could have been done more to my vineyard that I have not done in it? Wherefore, when I looked that it should bring forth grapes, brought it forth wild grapes. Now, the vineyard is the place where God works in the world. The vineyard is his kingdom. And what God expects to find in his kingdom is righteousness. He expects to find people that obey his word, that obey the commandments. He expects to find people that will give him all of the glory that he deserves. Well, the kingdom that God began to work in was Israel. Israel was the keeper of God's vineyard. She was the chosen nation that God worked through. Even though there were other nations and there were other governments, it was Israel and Israel alone that God chose to be his people who would tend this vineyard. So he committed the cultivation of that vineyard to them, to them alone. And folks, that is the highest privilege that could be afforded to any people. To be called the people of God To be the ones that have the oracles of God, the commandments of God, the ones that God honors as his own people and draws them to him. There is no greater privilege in the world than to belong to God. And to make no mistake about this, not everybody in the world belongs to God in this sense that everybody, that God's our father, that God is the one who watches over all of us. And God is the one who takes care of those who don't even believe in him. The Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible does not teach that God is the father of unbelievers. Jesus is very clear about that in John chapter 8. But here, Israel has been, is the one that was committed of the oracles of God, given the vineyard of God. Now, notice in this text that the householder is God planted the vineyard. He dug a wine press in it. In other words, he made a place where the grapes could be gathered and the grapes could be pressed out and the, and the juice of the vines could be, of the grapes could be pressed out there and, and then uh, into the wine vats. Then it says that he built a tower and that was a place where his servants could go up into a, a high place to watch over it, to make sure that no one was trying to break in and trying to destroy the vineyard. It says that he built a hedge about it. In those days, that could have been a stone wall. But more particularly here, it probably refers to a hedge of thorny vines that would keep animals from trying to get through or people from trying to climb over. So that's telling us that God protected this vineyard. Now, we could spiritualize all the components that the Word of God gives us, but that's not really necessary for us to do. It's simply telling us here that God has done everything for us. That God has given us everything that we need. That God has taken the greatest care possible to protect his vineyard and to make sure that it's successful. And indeed, these are the words that we read in Isaiah 5, verse number 4. What could have been done more to my vineyard that I've not done in it? So it's telling us here that God provided, that God protected, that God blessed, that God gave everything that was needed to ensure that this bountiful crop will be reaped. That it will be exactly what he wants there. But instead of reaping the blessings of God and of righteousness and holiness, God looked at his vineyard and he saw that it brought forth wild grapes. A crop that is no good. It's not a good harvest. It's not what God wanted. There was no righteousness there. There was only evil there. And the fault doesn't lie with God. The fault lies with the constant, repetitious rejection of Israel, those that God had put there to tend his vineyard. Now, folks, this is not a cryptic message that Jesus is giving here. God has done everything to ensure that the Holy Spirit will abound in all righteousness and godliness and holiness. What God has done is to put the evidence of his handiwork all over creation My wife and I got to see some of God's great creation these past couple of weeks as we traveled to many different places in in our country. God has put his handiwork over all of the creation. He put it into our hearts to know the difference between right and wrong. And then he gave us the Bible and he tells us how we can be righteous and holy. He tells us how to live. He tells us what he's done for us through Jesus Christ and the suffering of Christ on the cross. And yet we still continue to reject him and to go our own way. Now, this story is supposed to be about Israel. But can't you see how this applies to America? 
I mean, what country of the world has been blessed in the ways that God has blessed this country? What country of the world enjoys the wealth that we have, that has the most powerful armies and navies so that we practically control the entire world? And whether people like it or not, and this is almost always true, that the way that America goes is the way the rest of the world goes. They look to us because God has blessed us so richly, given us so many things. And since God has given us so much, what should God expect from his people? What should God expect from the people of America who have been given so much? You know, that's a very sobering thought. And I think that we can see that the history of America in many ways is a parallel to the history of Israel. Because every generation has taken us farther and farther away from God. Every generation in America has taken us farther and farther away from God. Now, there have been times of revival in America. For a short period of time, people have come back to God. But then, as we look at through, our, through it with our eyes, history repeats. And it appears to me that now we're awaiting God's final judgment. Now, we go on with this story. The landowner leased his vineyard out to others. He let it out to husbandmen. Well, that, that simply means that... He, he gave his vineyard to be tended by sharecroppers. And he went away into a far country. Now, again, that's very recognizable to Jesus' audience because this was a common thing for wealthy landowners to do. They would lease their land out to the sharecroppers or the tenant farmers, and they would go away to another place. And that's because the land of Palestine was a very dangerous place to live. Now, as I said before, it was a crossing place between many of the great world empires. And so there was a lot of war going on. A lot of, it was a really a war-torn region. And so wealthy landowners who could would leave, and they would just lease their land out to others. And then when it came time for the harvest to come, then the, they, he would send his servants back, or he would come back and he would collect the money uh, for the lease of the property. And that's what we find going on here in verse number 34. Here it says, And when the time of the fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the husbandmen that they might receive the fruits of it. And so the landowner sends his servants to collect the rents. The sharecroppers would receive their part of it that they could live off of. But then there's this rent to be paid when the fruits are taken to the market. And this man sent his servants to collect the money from those fruits. Verse 35 says, And the husbandman took his servants and beat one and killed another and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants more than the first, and they did unto them likewise. Now, this repetitive history of Israel brings us to the second observation today and points it out very clearly, and that is the patience of God. Just how patient that God was with these people. Now, the landowner sent his servants to collect the rent, but the renters took his servants and they killed another, or killed one, they beat one, they killed another, and they stoned another. Now, it's interesting to look at the words that are used here originally in the scriptures because that word beat actually means they scourged him or they flayed him. They flayed the skin off of him with a whip. And then it goes on, it says, they killed one. And then it says, they stoned another. And what this is doing is just intensifying the cruelty that was done to this man's servants. Now, they didn't just kill them, but they killed them with savagery. And when people were put to death in those days, there was no such thing as these great arguments over cruel unusual, and unusual punishment. This is the usual punishment. They stoned people to death. And when you think about stoning, they didn't just go up and, and just flip pebbles at somebody. Oh, when they stoned, they picked up rocks that were big enough to break bones. And they began to throw them at that person. And then when he was suffering and when he was hobbled and couldn't get around, then they would come, someone would come with a massive stone, and they would throw it right down on his head and crush his skull. This is how they treated the man's servants that were sent. Now, what is this all about? What is this trying to tell us? Well, it's trying to tell us that this is the history of Israel. This is the way they treated the prophets that were sent to them to correct them and bring them back to God. 
In Second Chronicles chapter 24, it says that Zechariah was stoned. We also read in Scripture that Jeremiah was thrown into a pit where he sunk up to his armpits in the mud. And Jeremiah was starved. Hebrews says that there were some that were sawn in half. And tradition tells us that Isaiah, that's the way that Isaiah died. And then who can forget about God's greatest prophet? Jesus declared him to be the greatest prophet of all. That was John the Baptist. And what did they do to him? They cut off his head. And so this was the treatment of God's righteous servants that were sent to help Israel to make sure that they reap the righteousness of God. And can I say something further to you about those prophets? These prophets that were sent also knew the history of Israel. They knew what would happen to them if they went to speak to the people and tried to turn them back to God. Israel's history was that prophets will be killed. And yet these prophets went. They knew that they could be killed. And did you know that this is what God puts into the heart of people who know Jesus Christ as Savior? He will put it into your heart that you will be willing to die for him if necessary. The true people of God live that way and they die that way. They're willing to do it if they know Jesus Christ truly as their Savior. But what did God do about all of this? He was patient. I mean, how many prophets were sent over how many years? From Moses to the New Testament is a period about 1,500 years, and God was continually sending prophets. God heeded the prayer of Solomon in 1 Kings chapter 8. And sometime you might want to read that chapter and just see what God asked Solomon, or Solomon asked God to do. But God was patient. And in verse number 36, it says that after the servants were beaten and killed and were stoned, that God sent more prophets to them, and they were treated in the same way. And so we look and we see how long-suffering that God is. Hundreds of years of rebellion, many, many prophets that are sent and calling the people to repentance, and all of these prophets are ignored and they are killed. You say, well, why? Why would they do that? Well, it's because people don't like prophets. And why don't they like them? Because a prophet in these times is one who told people about their sin. A prophet is one who said, you have sinned against God, you need to turn around and you need to come back. He said, why does God talk to people about sin? Does God hate people? Does God want to make you miserable and he doesn't want your life to be happy and enjoyable to let you do what you want to do? No, the reason that God wants to tell you about sin is because he wants you to be a person that glorifies him. God's not interested in punishing everybody. God is interested in having people that glorify him. And that's why he sends somebody to tell you about the sin of your life and how you need to turn against God, back to God. Now, what happens is when people don't turn to God, they die in those sins. Now, again, God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. He wants to save people. He wants holiness and righteousness not to punish But God does punish when people don't turn to him. And you know that there are people in the church today that they don't like pastors who talk about sin. They don't like pastors that that speak about the things that people are actually doing. Now, if I talk to you uh, about sin in a very general category, then that might be all right with you. But if I have to get real specific and tell you what your sins are, That you ought not to be talking the way that you talk. And you ought not to be texting the things that you text. And you ought not to be dating the person that you're dating. And you ought not to be in an illicit relationship with someone that you're not married to. Then people don't like prophets anymore. They don't like preachers anymore because they don't want people pointing out their sin. And the consequence of this today is that churches no longer preach about sin. So you go to a church that preaches about the sins of the people, and that place very quickly empties out. And so the ones that are gathering all the people to them today are ones that I heard about, I think I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, like a a church right here in in the Santa Rosa area, that they mock the preaching of hell. Mocked preachers who speak about hell and about sin. We don't want to talk about those kinds of things. Well, that's what we find People want to silence the message about sin and hell because it is offensive to them. 
But I want you to understand that the only thing that a a godly pastor really wants is for you to be blessed and for you to have the righteousness of Christ in your life and to be received of God because of that righteousness. Now, again, we see a parallel here. Our government has tried to silence the uh, the pulpit. Uh, They aren't killing preachers yet, but you know that it's become illegal to speak about God and about sin and about lifestyles in certain venues. We can't do that any longer. The government's taken the Ten Commandments out of our public places. It's taking prayer, uh, taking prayer out of the public places. And, and our government has nothing but contempt for God, the one who has blessed us with so many blessings. And so sometimes we sit back and we say, oh, well, that's the government doing that. But who is the government in America? Us. The people. That's the government of America. And I'm not going to get political today, but some of you vote for some of those people. What's wrong? I mean, we're, we're the ones to blame, and God is going to judge the people. God will judge the people. The government is us, folks, and we're held accountable. Now, now, notice the further patience of God. The, the landowner didn't stop with the servants. He sent many servants. All of them were shamefully treated, but he didn't stop there. When the servants ran out and the time ran out, it says, then, last of all, he sent his son. Verse 37, but last of all, he sent unto them his son, saying, they will reverence my son. So last of all, the last attempt was to send his son. Surely they're going to respect the son. And of course, you and I, we know who this son is. This is clear to us that Jesus is talking about himself, that he is the son of God. And so the last effort, the last arrow in the quiver As Alexander McLaren said, the last arrow in the quiver was the sun. Now, at this point, there's an objection that's raised to this parable. People criticize this parable. And they say, well, this could never happen this way. This can never happen. The landowner would not send his son after all of his servants had been so shamefully treated and murdered. He's not going to send his son. Nobody's ever going to do this. Was that a valid objection? No. It's exactly the point. That no one would do this but God. No one would ever be this patient. No no one would ever suffer his faithful servants to be killed and then send his son to these ungrateful mongrels. But that's the patience of God. That's the love of God for sinners. He is not willing that any should perish. Now, rightly so and justly so, all of us should perish in our sins. None of us should be saved. All of us deserve the terrible wrath of God. But no, God sent his son. Several weeks ago, we were looking at one of the outreach videos. We heard a man say that he could not believe in a God who would allow suffering, that he could not believe in a God who would allow rape and murder and disaster, perhaps even the disaster we just saw in that hurricane in the Philippines. He couldn't believe in a God like that. And he said that as if he were innocent of all crimes against God. Folks, there is none of us that is innocent of crimes against God. All of us deserve the wrath of God. All of us have gone out of the way. All of us have defied him. But last of all, God sent his son. God sent his son to save us from the eternal destruction of the fires of hell. You know, I wonder sometimes about these preachers and these churches where... They never talk about hell and they never talk about sin. How can you magnify what Christ has done for us unless you understand the consequences of sin? Unless you understand how terrible that sin is against God and what the consequences of an eternal hell are, how could you really understand what Jesus Christ did for you on the cross? You can't understand it. You have to know these other things. And that's why the Bible, that's why Jesus talks so much about them. But complainers still go on in their rejection. They blame God for these things when God is actually the one who is merciful, the one who offers forgiveness for all of our sins. So Jesus said God is patient. Last of all, he sent his son. Now, we need to pause there just briefly 
Do you, do you see the distinction here that's very carefully made? Don't read this too quickly and miss this. The prophets were sent, and then there was a son that was sent. The son is not the same as the prophets. The son is above and beyond the prophets. Last of all, God sent the best. Now, in this chapter, in verse number 11, Jesus is called the prophet of Galilee, but Jesus identifies himself not as a prophet, but as the son of God. That means deity. Last of all, Deity came, and what happened? Verse number 38. But when the husbandmen saw the son, they said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and let us seize on his inheritance. And they caught him and cast him out of the vineyard and slew him. So they killed the son. They cast him out, and they killed him. God was patient with them, but they cared nothing for God's patience. Now, how many of you hear messages each week? You know what God expects from you, and yet you still go on every week killing the son. And your stubbornness and your unbelief, you will not turn. You go on in your sin, and you cast the Savior out. Now, what we find here is another instance of fulfilled prophecy. The renters cast the son out of the vineyard, and they killed him. And what did they do to Jesus? They took him outside of the city... And they crucified him on the outside. Now, the scriptures had told us, told them about this in many different uh, types and figures, that Jesus would be killed outside the confines of the established religion, and that Jesus would be cast out of the city that was his own, which is Jerusalem. Hebrews 13:12 says, Wherefore Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered without the gate. That means outside of the city of God. So Jesus suffered outside. There was no room for him in his life or in his death. And just like their forefathers, they were always true to the same history time after time. They killed those that were sent. And this time it's the son. A short time later, Stephen, as he was just before he was stoned, he reminded these people of what they had done. After the fact, after Jesus had been cast out and killed, Stephen said, Which of the prophets have not your fathers persecuted? And they have slain them which showed before the coming of the just one, of whom ye have been now the betrayers and murderers. So the Jews killed Jesus, the Son of God. And in this story, they killed the owner's son. Now we might think, well, what was on their minds? What are they thinking about that they would kill all these servants and kill the owner's son? Verse 38, but when the husbandmen saw the son, they said among themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and let us seize on his inheritance. So the renters killed the servants and they killed the heir and they must have thought, well, this owner is either dead or he's afraid to come. He must be dead or afraid to come. You know, a few years ago, there was this thing going around. God is dead. God is dead. He must be dead or he must be afraid to come. And so they thought, we'll take ownership of this vineyard. These are squatters with an absent owner. And just like our law, I suppose, possession is nine-tenths of the law. So they thought that the vineyard was theirs. Israel thought, this is ours. We have rights to it. We can do whatever we want to. And they said to Jesus, you have no authority here. You have no authority to do what you do. This is our vineyard. But what they didn't know is that it belonged to God. It always belonged to God. And God was not going to pass that on to those who had no reverence for his name or would keep his commandments. And this is how we think in America. This is our country. We own it. We have our rights. We can do what we want to do. But I tell you a thousand times no, because we own nothing. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Everything that we think that we have is on loan from God. We don't own anything. And here's what's going to happen. When we finally push God completely out of our society, when we say we're done with God, that's when his patience will end. At some point, God comes to the end of his patience, and that's when judgment falls. That's our next observation, the pronouncement of judgment. 
Verse 40, when the Lord, therefore, the vineyard cometh, what will he do to those husbandmen? And he receives this answer from these religious leaders. They say unto him, he will miserably destroy those wicked men and will let out his vineyard unto other husbandmen, which shall render him the fruits in their seasons. Now, what Jesus had just done was force them to render the verdict of their own judgment. The logical conclusion of this ill treatment is what? Oh, what could they say? I mean, who wouldn't say, well, those wicked men that have killed all these servants, they should be destroyed and the vineyard should be given to others that will faithfully render the service that is required. And, of course, that's what we would expect. No one's going to argue with that. That's sound. That's just. And yet we wonder, why are there so many ignorant people today who don't understand this reasoning That they think that God is not going to bring judgment on those who reject his son. That God has been so gracious and kind to us. And here we are living in sin and doing some of the worst things imaginable in our country. And we have convinced ourselves that God is never going to do anything about it. That we can just live the way we want to live. Do what we want to do. And God is off there somewhere out there. And God does not care. God is just looking down or not looking down. He has no interest in what goes on. I'm telling you, that's not the truth. One of these days, judgment is going to come. What does Jesus say? He will miserably, or what do they say, rather? He will miserably destroy those wicked men. And the literal meaning of that is that he will bring a great evil upon them. And friends, the evil is destruction in the fires of hell. Judgment is coming. Now, I'm not going to stand out on a street corner with a sign that says, get right with God because judgment is coming. But I'm going to tell you from this pulpit that it is coming. God's patience will run out. It's just like it was in the days of Noah. God said, I, my spirit's not always going to strive with man. It will not always strive with man. One day the patience runs out and then judgment comes just like the flood came and destroyed those wicked men from the earth. Now, friends, this is what happens when the wickedness of the world is filled up. God will reach his limit. He doesn't let it go on forever. God is going to bring judgment, which he graphically describes in the end of this passage. Now, fourthly and lastly, and I'll hurry for you, the presentation of Christ, the presentation of him. Verse number 41, they say unto him, he will miserably destroy those wicked men and will let out his vineyard unto other husbandmen, which shall render him the fruits of their seasons, Jesus saith unto them, Did you never read in the scriptures the stone which the builders rejected? The same has become the head of the corner, and this is the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous in our eyes. Therefore say I unto you, the kingdom of God shall be taken from you and given to a nation, bringing forth the fruits thereof. And whosoever shall fall on this stone shall be broken, but on whomsoever it shall fall, it will grind him to powder. Folks, those are some words you need to read over and over again. These are very powerful words. This is about the authority of Jesus Christ. Now, the Jews killed the prophets. And yes, they will cast Jesus out of the city. They will hang him with nails on a wooden cross. They rejected him in every which way. But this one who is rejected will be restored as the rightful owner of the vineyard. And then what will he do? He will give his vineyard to his faithful people. Now, it first appears here that Jesus is switching gears and he's moving on. Now he has a new metaphor that he's using. First of all, it's a vineyard. Now he's speaking of a building and talking about a cornerstone. But Jesus is still on the right track, the same track. Uh, The leaders rejected Christ. They, They put him aside. They had no room for him in their spiritual house. They tried to build a kingdom without him. And I can tell you now that this is what was wrong in Jerusalem at that very time. This is why there were Romans running around everywhere. This is why Israel was not in control. It's because they tried to build a kingdom without God. And that will never work. And you know this, there are people in churches today, and churches are trying to build something that is spiritual and that is lasting without God. They have cast Jesus out So there's no more preaching about Jesus and the cross. And I've already told you there's no preaching about sin and hell. They've cast all of that out and they're trying to build something spiritual which simply cannot work. It will not work. 
You can't throw Jesus out of Christianity. You can't throw out what he says in his word and expect you're going to build anything lasting. And what's going to happen to all of these churches is that their houses will be left to them desolate. When the Jesus comes back, you know what's going to happen? They'll still be having church. And we'll be gone. They'll still be having church. Because they don't know who Jesus is. They've already cast him out. So Jesus here talks about the stone that's rejected. And I could go into stories uh, about how there was a stone that was rejected in the second building of the temple after the Babylonian captivity. There was a stone that later they decided, well, that's the stone that we need. And that's the stone that was brought back and put into its rightful place. And that stone was the main stone. That was the stone that made the building right and true. And I don't know if you've ever studied this out before, but you'll find there's a lot of argument over this about whether this stone is a capstone or is it a foundation stone. And it really doesn't make any difference here because the the essence is still the same. The, the, The outcome is still the same. It is a main necessary stone. It's the one that makes everything right. Jesus said, did you never read in the scriptures? Again, a criticism of their Bible knowledge and interpretations Did you never read this in the scriptures? What Jesus did was he went back to the Psalms and he quoted a very curious scripture here because the people had actually quoted a part of this psalm just a couple of days before. You remember when Jesus rode in on the donkey, rode into Jerusalem to the praises of the people, they quoted part of Psalm 118. They said, blessed be he that cometh in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you out of the house of the Lord. And Jesus just takes them back to a few verses previous to that. In the same chapter, he said, The stone which the builders refused is become the headstone of the corner. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. So he masterfully crafted and put scripture together. He is that stone that is rejected. And yet he is the perfect stone. He, he is the one to which the whole building must be fitted And what they had done was to reject this stone. And therefore, they rejected God's kingdom. It's the only one that makes God's house spiritually square and right. So the stone that was rejected, Jesus says, it will be made the head of the corner. That means Jesus will be exalted. It means that he is the most significant part and his kingdom is built on him. This is why you can't do without him. And since they rejected that kingdom, it would be taken from them and given to others. And who is he talking about? Who are the others that this kingdom will be given to? Well, first of all, it's the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the people who trusted Christ. Later, it will be the restored nation of Israel in the millennial kingdom. Now, they cast out Christ, but Christ will cast out all of them. And that's what happened. Some 40 years later, the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed. And what is it that survived the temple? What survived that time? The church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's still here, and it's still preaching the gospel of Christ. So Jesus was shoved aside. He was rejected. They killed him. But then three days later, he arose from the dead. And when he did, that's when people began to realize, even his own disciples realized it even more. He is presented as God's son. The resurrection from the dead validated his ministry And it validated redemption for everyone who trusts in him as Lord and Savior. Now, one last thing before I close. Verses 45 and 46 tell us that they understood he was speaking of them. And at that very moment, you know what they wanted to do? Kill him. Right then, they wanted to cast him out of the vineyard. But they wouldn't do it because they were afraid of the people. In just a short time, the people would join with them and they would crucify Jesus. But they would not triumph over him. Why? Because he says, whoever falls on this stone will be broken. Whoever falls on this stone will be broken. Like a piece of pottery thrown against a massive stone that breaks into pieces, they will be broken. It means that anybody who tries to stop the work of God will be broken. 
And you know that what ha- that's what happens when people stand against the church of the living God? This is what happens to them. They are going to be broken. But then he says something else. He says, on whomsoever this stone falls, it will grind him to powder. That means that he'll be ground to dust like chaff on the threshing floor that's blown away to the wind. Nothing left of them. No substance. And so do you see what the Bible is telling us here? The most important history of the world runs through Israel. They may seem small, they may seem insignificant, but this is the nation of history. Your history book won't tell you this, but God's word will. And what we don't want to be guilty of is repeating Israel's history. So I can tell you today that the Son of God is here because he is alive, because he rose from the grave. He is here and he is checking on things. God is checking on things. He has sent his servants to give you the truth of his word. And here is the thing about God. He knows everything that's in your heart. He knows if you have a heart of rejection. And the Bible says if you do, he will grind you to powder. And those aren't my words. Those are his. Here's what God wants. God wants you to trust him because he is patiently waiting for you to turn around and come to him. Folks, understand this. The time is coming when God will wait no longer. Judgment is coming. And we need to be prepared for the judgment that comes. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Strong words that we find in this passage. Jesus Jesus did not try to gloss this over. He didn't try to do like so many people in churches today try to do, to say that, oh, this is not really all that important, or it doesn't really matter. Let's just go on and do what we've been doing because everything's going to be fine. That's not what Jesus says here. Everything is not going to be fine. It's only fine for those who trust you as Savior. So, Lord, we do pray that you would turn someone to you today. May your Holy Spirit speak to hearts and and may your spirit speak to your own people that we consistently and faithfully serve you every single day of our lives. Give you the honor and the glory that you so richly deserve. Thank you, Lord, for giving us Jesus Christ. His death is no accident. His death was planned from the foundation of the world. And he came to die for unworthy sinners like these people here and like me. And I just pray, Lord, we would trust you for it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Roanoke Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.